You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Alex Thier, and uh, I'm the executive director here at ODI. Uh, and I am delighted to have today uh, what I think is going to be a wonderful conversation with the relatively new, do you want to still be called new, newish, uh, almost a year into the job, uh, administrator of the UN Development Program, Achim Steiner. So please join me in welcoming Achim to ODI. Um, it has been a pretty amazing year uh, in a lot of respects for many people. Um, probably a year of uncertainty uh, geopolitically, uh, certainly a lot of change in the UN and a lot of people trying to figure out sort of what to make of these big changes uh, and where the institution is going to go. Um, when we were here with you a year ago, uh, and in fact, talking about the new SG uh, coming in, the Secretary General coming into his role, um, uh, there was a lot of speculation about what that was going to look like. We also had a new President of the United States, some big elections to come uh, in Europe, and a lot of uncertainty. Um, so that's a lot of time under our belt. Um, and you've had an opportunity now to be in, in your job for a year. And so I think we want to explore some of that um, and then talk about uh, the really big questions, uh, what we're really here for, uh, looking at the path of the Sustainable Development Goals, where they're going, and how we're going to deal with some of these big challenges. Uh, so it's really great to have a fantastic audience here with us today. Not only do we have a packed house here, uh, but we have a lot of people online. Uh, and so I want to encourage all of you to do a couple of things. First of all, silence your phones, but don't turn them off. In fact, you should join the conversation. Uh, we have a very own hashtag, uh, hashtag ODI Steiner. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, you can also use uh, Achim's uh, uh, name at A Steiner. It's up there on the wall or at ODI Dev to join the conversation. And we also really encourage those of you who are watching us online uh, around the world. Uh, you can also send in questions and through the miracle of technology, I should get them here. And so we'll bring you into the conversation uh, as well. Uh, but first, let me introduce our guest and then we'll just jump in. Um, Achim Steiner became the UNDP administrator in June of 2017, um, leaving the bucolic beauty of uh, Oxford and Broad Street. Um, and had previously been the executive director of the UN Environment Program in Nairobi. Uh, he's not only the administrator at UNDP, but he also serves as the vice chair of the UN Development Group, which unites, I don't know if the number is the same today, but 32 UN funds, programs, specialized agencies, and other bodies uh, that work to support sustainable development. Um, and that is itself an enormous task. Um, over nearly three decades, uh, Achim, who is of German-Brazilian ancestry, and maybe he'll talk a little bit about that too, um, has been a global leader on sustainable development, climate resilience, and international cooperation, and he's been a tireless champion of sustainability um, and watching out for the most vulnerable in society. 
Um, so we're really thrilled uh, to have you with us today. Um, so in order to start the conversation and to provide uh, all of us with a little bit of context, it'd be great actually to go back and talk a little bit about what brought you to this work uh, in the first place. Um, I note that uh, I don't know how many of your years you were born in Brazil. I don't know how many of your years that you spent there. But when you were coming of age, the environmental movement was really kind of getting started, and Brazil was a big place and a focus for that. Tell us a little bit about what you, inspired you to do uh, what you do. Well, Alex, first of all, thank you for, for the invitation. It, it is uh, almost therapeutic to be back uh, a year after I, I sat here, and actually a few months before that, we had had indeed a debate about the new Secretary General, the new United Nations, and um, I remember sitting, I don't know whether it was this conference room, it was set up perhaps a bit differently, discussing that. So many things have happened since then, and, and obviously we will touch on them today. But just to go back to your question, I, I was indeed born in, in Brazil, grew up the first 10 years there, then spent some years um, in Germany, then some years in the UK, and ever since then I um, fled, so to speak, into the world, because that was my passion. I wanted to uh, live in different places. I had grown up in a country uh, where, you know, extreme wealth, extreme poverty was something that, you know, you would see every day. And I felt that um, development as an area of work would combine passion with professional competency in a way that I certainly, um, you know, was determined to, to, to put myself into. And um, I then went on to study development economics, and that was sort of the, you know, the root uh, as, a, as a thread. I mean, I did also philosophy and politics and did an, a master's in area studies Africa here at SOAS in, in London, um, studied at the German Development Institute. So I really did try and prepare myself as a development professional. But my biggest sort of uh, experience initially was when after graduating with my bachelor's in Oxford, I went to India as a volunteer, as an apprentice to work with an Indian organization to see how would you now fit into to this development challenge. And it was a bit of a hard landing because basically 99% of what I'd learned was totally irrelevant to the reality of working at a village level in a very Gandhian sort of organization focused on development. And from there on became, I think, or came a, a much more deliberate form of understanding at what point do you begin to make a difference? What kind of uh, skills do you need not to bring but to engage? Um, and that was really my progression then into, into development. And there I, I ended up choosing the sustainability end of it because I was absolutely horrified, I have to say, of where we were in the 1980s. We were on the back of you know, decades of uh, an economically fixated growth paradigm. And all around us, you know, we could see that this was not going to work out. So. I didn't begin my career as an environmentally focused uh, person, actually as a development economist. And then I think it is, uh, to some extent, a certain degree of poetic justice that um, 30 years later I find myself heading the development program of the United Nations in an age where the SDGs have finally accomplished what 30, 35 years ago we all thought was long overdue and, and would never happen, perhaps. So that's, that's sort of closing the circle a bit. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. You, you uh, I know that you worked for a while at the World Commission on Dams, and 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 that commission was famous for 
confronting this challenge that all development and economic development has a serious cost and advocated some, I think, real rollbacks in some ways that are still at the heart of this conversation about bringing, thinking about climate and uh, environment and development together. You know, this is one of the challenges when we talk about development. And you can look at it in two ways. I mean, if you take Rosling's work, who you know passed away last year, I think, or Max Rosa's work now in Oxford, The World in Data, uh, they constantly try and demonstrate to us that actually we have lived through the most remarkable two to three hundred years of progress in terms of meta indicators of uh, you know uh, longevity of health of education and therefore development over the last two to three hundred years has been an extraordinary story of success and it has been when you think back four or five hundred years ninety five percent of us lived in some form of autocratic regime uh, very much dependent on maybe a little bit of land and the generosity and perhaps a, a peaceful uh, ruler around us. We live in a very different world today and we live with seven billion people. But the other side of it is also, and that became my preoccupation, and particularly through the World Commission on Dams, because in that debate about dams, you had a crystallization of just about every aspect of development, uh, from the upstream and the downstream, from human rights to provision of electricity and access to energy from the ingenuity of engineers who, you know, some of the dams that have been built are nothing but miracles of human ingenuity, no question about it, to the tragedy of the blindness in planning development where some decide the trade-offs. Namely, we need electricity for development, we need water for irrigation, the riparian communities don't matter, the resettled people don't have to be better off, they're actually obstructing development. And so that led me to a very clear realization that in the name of development, we have committed some grave mistakes, and an unfortunate number, and they're in the tens of millions of people, have become more impoverished because of so-called development policies and interventions. And that is, to me, perhaps um, the simplest explanation of why I am a naturally sustainable development-focused person, because I think from the beginning, uh, the bringing together of the economic, the social, and the environmental was fundamental to actually talking about development, whether you call it sustainable development, uh, fair development, or you know, environmentally sustainable. Um, living with seven, soon 10 billion people on this planet leaves us with no option but. And I, I like to often refer to Angela Cropper, the late Angela Cropper, who some of you will, will remember, who in the run-up to the Rio Plus 20 conference, where the, the SDGs and Agenda 2030 was born, described the emerging paradigm as essentially the triple helix of development, you know, from the, the kind of silos where, you know, we had the massive economic arguments driving development and a kind of social inequality, poverty-driven uh, contingent correcting for that and an environmental movement even wanting to be heard. Today we have a concept of development that is truly of a different quality and therefore I think the SDGs are a culmination of a, of a sort of civilizational milestone. We have learned some profoundly important lessons, um, and some have paid a very bitter price for them. But we are in a different place today, and that's the exciting part of being in this development community. So clearly your career is, uh, is in many ways about this question, right? You moved from a decade leading the UN Environment Program to now going to the UN Development Program at a moment finally, in which these agendas have been brought together. 
Uh, but does it feel that way? Uh, I think that there, uh, uh, I think it feels to many as though the rhetoric about bringing these things together is probably a little bit ahead of the reality. And I'm curious how you think about that. Well, first of all, articulating something that is right can never be wrong, right? Even if you cannot live up to it. So um, let's start with where humans, um, first of all, forge a vision together, where they um, arrive at a consensus, where they can commit themselves, and where we essentially get an expression of something that unifies us rather than divides us. So in that respect, I think Agenda 2030 and the SDGs are remarkable. And they're remarkable for the moment in which they were born, they're remarkable as a product of the process out of which they were born. Remember, this was 193 member states of the United Nations negotiating for two years and coming to an agreement about, for the first time in human history, a universal agenda for development. And this is without precedent. It is a far more integrated agenda. It is an agenda that I think speaks powerfully to what motivates many of our fellow citizens at the moment to disengage from politics, to disengage from society, which is this feeling of having been left behind. And yes, it is on the one hand something to do with inequality, uh, with data that points to you know, emerging poverty again. But it's not just that. It's not just economics. It's not just you know, per capita GDP. It's a sense of fairness. It's a sense of the freedom of choice. And that is woven into this SDG discourse as well. I think it's partly why we even arrived in 2015 at an agreement to have the SDGs. So leaving no one behind, to some is just a phrase. To me, it's actually the most powerful way of saying this is a product of our time. And so I look at the SDGs right now, first of all, in the aspirational sense, and I find them extremely attractive. I watch them in terms of how they are beginning to shape decision-making and conversations in the most divergent settings, whether you know, in the UN, outside the UN, in a government, in a parliament, in a business, in a stock market. And I'm fascinated by how people are actually finding it really helpful to work with this framework. Because frankly speaking, you know, the world is complex. I mean, a few weeks ago, I was slightly misquoted in a tweet that, you know, nobody understands how the world works. Well, in some ways, it's actually true. But we have to still work with it. So we have to figure out how we organize ourselves in a world of immense complexity. The SDGs, I think, do a somehow remarkably effective job at giving everybody a sense, okay, I can handle this because I can begin to see myself. I'm interested in this area, but I can see how it's connected to that area. So people get lost in the detail of the indicators and the targets. Remember, that's the engineering part of the SDGs. That's what nerds maybe like us in this room will worry about. How can we monitor? How can we measure? How can we report? But to 99% of the world, the SDGs are, as I often say, they are the operating system of development. People don't need to get to know the operating system. They need to work with it. Now watch how the world has begun to work with the SDGs. And don't argue that, you know, if I stepped out with your camera right now on the street and asked me, do you know what the SDGs is? Obviously people wouldn't. Although, who knows, it's in the vicinity of ODI, <laughs> and five out of ten would say, oh, absolutely, I know it. So. <laughs> The point is, let people discover that the SDGs speak to what they're actually debating in their parliaments, which is, I'm worried about pandemics. What, what's going to happen? Who, who is actually protecting me? Um, I'm worried about migration. I'm worried about refugees. I'm worried about war. I want to do something about poverty. I'm worried about unemployment and the future of technology. Well, all of this is actually, in a way, 
now far more discussable in the context of the SDGs. So here is the power of an idea translated into 17 goals, targets, and indicators. Let's not be scared of our own success, because this is also sometimes strange. You know, we are all intellectually um, ambitious people. We may be well-trained and well-educated. The first reaction by the professionals of the SDGs being adopted in 2015 was sort of, well, okay, I mean, this is never going to work, so, you know, let's try and get back to our business as normal. No. I mean, take a look at the SDGs, take them for what they are, which is a framework, an aspirational expression of something that unites us in understanding that this planet needs development where people in one part of the world need to understand that they're part of a larger whole. And out of that can come amazing solutions, some of which we haven't even dreamt of yet. If you take the SDGs as that, they're more than an invitation. They're actually a foundation. They're a platform which to work. Then they're immensely liberating. If you look at them as something that is telling you what to do tomorrow and that has predefined your scope of action, they become a false prison. And I think that's something we have to be very careful mm -hmm. about. Well, let's come back to the sort of what's going to need to happen in terms of ambition and tools and so on to realize the, the, uh, the SDGs. But, but I want to focus a little bit on uh, uh, your experience. Um, so you left uh, 10 years at the UN Environment Program, which was based in Nairobi, had a little bit of time off for reflection, and have found yourself in the crucible in New York at a moment when the UN is reforming, uh, governments are changing, the US government is making cuts, making claims about cuts to the UN, um, and you're trying to figure out how to, how to move forward. H how's the first year been? <laughs> Well, let me just say one thing. I mean, my year leading the Oxford Martin School was not sitting back and reflecting, <laughs> I can assure you. And um, I, I, um, it was actually the most intense year because as a professional who had led an organization, had worked at senior levels in the international arena, it was a very good experience to go back into an environment where people are constantly pushing the frontiers of knowledge, research, and science. And you realize how far sometimes inquiry and research is ahead in terms of horizons from where we actually uh, pick off when we work and lead organizations. So to me, it was an immensely powerful experience. And, and I'm only sorry that it, it, it was shorter than, than I had envisaged it to be. But so here I am, 10 months, I think, into my job. Um, it is fascinating. As I sometimes say to people, you know, I will go into work in the mornings and think I have the most remarkable position that I've ever held. I, lead an institution that is at the center of development. It is an unconditional offer to countries to say, you want to develop, how can we help you? I mean, this is the United Nations' most aspirational offer in its history, unconditional. It's there to help a country. It's there to not tell a country what to do, but to respond to where its demands are. I mean, this is not an idealized version of it. The only detraction is then how can you find the funds to do the things that you want to do? But UNDP really is that, and um, it is an organization with 17,000 people, active in 177 countries, with, as I would say, a sort of finger on the pulse of development in all these different settings. What an extraordinary position to hold inside a family of the United Nations that if you take all the specialized agents, funds, and programs, is the most extraordinary knowledge network humanity has ever known, right? I mean, we are about to meet here in London as the chief executive board with the Secretary General. 
if you sit around that table and, and see the 37 or 38 of us, it is a most amazing realization of, of the um, extraordinary collection of, of expertise and from issues of intellectual property to whether in the Universal Postal Union letters can reach one end of the earth to the other, uh, the issues of cybercrime you know, that we will be tackling, um, down to you know, the basics of global trade. It is a phenomenal network. And in the middle of that, you sit with a mandate to help countries shape their national development strategy. From that vantage point, the first year has been amazing because I do believe that in the era of the SDGs, to then lead a development program of the United Nations is actually an extraordinary opportunity. Now, sometimes if you bump into me going home in the evenings, I will say to you, what on earth did I do, right? <laughs> I, I am in the middle of an extremely politically complex moment in, in international politics, right? Let's leave it at that. Um, we have a, a moment in time where against our own better intuition, we have developed a skepticism towards multilateralism that is disturbing. Um, and I say these two things because every single poll, public opinion poll, still has people saying, I love the idea of the United Nations. I believe in its charter. I believe in its values. I mean, they're usually above 90%. And yet, the translation of, I see the United Nations as an organization delivering on that charter is often at the other end of the spectrum. You know, people watch the Security Council. They watch the evening news and they say, everything seems to be getting worse. So what, what, is, what is going on? And that has to do now with the third challenge that we have. We live in an immensely disruptive period in history. Uh, disruptive in, in the sense that our political consensus post-Cold War has evaporated and we are left standing relatively badly prepared for, first of all, that loss of, of consensus. Secondly, we have neglected the institutions that traditionally would allow us in that situation to come together, including the United Nations and multilateralism. And thirdly, we are confronted with epochal changes. We have to literally decarbonize our economies in the next 20 to 40 years. We have to absorb uh, a, a wave of energy, um, of, of technology innovations that will transform the way we think about work, about income, about livelihoods in a way that has never happened in history before. We are confronted by also a prospect of conflict and human suffering that um, is quite frankly scaring everybody. I mean, we have more conflicts now than we've had in the last 30 years in terms of a moment in time. We have record numbers of refugees and displaced people, and we are falling apart over 65 million. What, what will happen when we have 200 million? And we are going to be a world of 10, 10 billion people with you know, sea level rises, extreme weather events, um, floods and droughts. That phenomenon of people not being able to stay in a place that they have called home for hundreds of years is going to be a new normal, as, as you know, people are prone to call these things. Um, we have the fourth industrial revolution. I could go on. So disruption is in itself never a priori a negative thing, but disruption that you're not well prepared for, disruption that amplifies you know, dissent, whether in terms of a normative element or things like inequality, can very quickly turn into something extremely dangerous. And therefore, my sometimes walking home in the evening is also shaped by this sense of 
How on earth can the UN's development program, embedded in the United Nations development system and its overall mandate in charter, help the world navigate its way forward when you know, it is being attacked by some interests for, from my point of view, totally legitimate reasons. It is being doubted by many for whether it can be effective in delivering. And therefore, we are in need of an urgent conversation about what is the future of multilateralism and what does this mean also for the future of development and vice versa? Well, I'm a little freaked out. That was, uh, that was quite a litany. Um, uh, so let me ask you, I mean, let me carry that slightly a step further. Um, you know, maybe during the Cold War period, the UN was held together by the closeness of the experience of, of World War II and what emerged from that. And so even as it seemed as though the UN was failing in all of these, in its ability to carry out some of its political agenda as well as other things, there was still this kind of real defining reason. In a new era, much farther away from that, emerging great power conflict, the challenges that you identified a Security Council that could break confidence again in the ability of the UN to do anything meaningful on a political level, do you, do you worry? And how, how bound up is this conversation about UN reform, not just in who should be managing what within the system, which is important, but some of these bigger pictures of does the UN have a viable future? Well, the UN is an expression of a fundamental realization that, remember, was born out of two world wars, the failed League of Nations and then the, the catastrophe of the Second World War. I sometimes wonder how we could recreate that sense of moment that clearly was at the heart of establishing the United Nations. I mean, the, if you go back to the charter and you read it, I mean, you can almost um, sense the, uh, the visionary optimism uh, the deep trauma that defined that generation that set up the United Nations as the ultimate antidote to fascism, to domination by one country, to extremism, to the kind of um, cataclysm that we experienced at that time. Now, we live in an age where I think many of us have become, uh, in a sense, complacent about the world, partly because the rich world has escaped conflict for a long time. And to me, one of the most disturbing phenomena of the last few years has been is how one of the richest parts of the world, namely the European Union, you know, got seriously destabilized by a couple of million refugees entering its borders. Now, I do not want to diminish in any way the experience that many have about large numbers of people from somewhere else coming to the place I call home. We should not be in denial about this. It's cultural. It has something to do with bigotry, but it also has something to do with legitimate fears and concerns. And I think we, we need to be very clear in our minds that we are extremely ill-prepared for a world that um, will choose conflict over uh, peace, that will choose competition over cooperation in addressing the issues that, that you know we just touched on in, in the previous question. And herein, I think lies the, the urgency of the moment. We, we do need to have a conversation, not so much about the UN as a set of institutions, but about why we believe multilateralism, um, the, the philosophy of working together despite our differences, is actually fundamental to coping with the 21st century. Um, in the 20th century, it was still largely defined by um, peace and war and conflict. But in the 21st century, whether you take climate change, the ozone layer, 
whether you take cybercrime, whether you take new technologies, um, all of these require us to, to work 24-7 instantly together in actually being able to manage our global world. And the conversation about the future of the UN has got to stop picking on the fact that the Security Council is, in some people's minds, a seemingly dysfunctional forum. I mean, it is a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but, you know, calling the United Nations the United Nations was, in some ways, the aspiration. The fact that it exists is precisely because nations are not united. So to those who are surprised that we have a Security Council that is divided, maybe you should take a moment to step back and say, well, that's why we have a Security Council, because so often we have divided nations. How the Security Council manages those divisions, how the General Assembly becomes a forum for allowing not only large nations to dictate the future of this planet, but for every nation to be represented and have a voice, which is the fundamental principle of representation in the United Nations, without precedent and without parallel to this day on a global level, is something extremely worthwhile protecting. And herein, I think, begins a different kind of conversation than picking holes in failures that are, to some extent, normal, to some extent, yes, should not happen, but overall, we have to rediscover the value of multilateralism in the sense that it already serves us today. And on that build, I think, a political agenda where prime ministers and ministers and parliaments begin to actually not simply neglect the United Nations, but begin to protect it as an extremely vital part of our fabric of, of international cooperation. From there, I think citizens can very quickly connect, again, the, the, the charter and the aspiration of a United Nations idea with their reality in their country, in their community. And the SDGs, I mean, just to turn a little bit back to that, are precisely that. I mean, the SDGs connect me as an individual to seven billion other people's decisions. And Ban Ki-moon, our previous Secretary General, called the SDGs a declaration of interdependence. I still think it's a brilliant term in which to just explain what is it. It is a declaration of interdependence. It acknowledges that what you do, even if you live 5,000 miles away from me, together with your friends, your family, your nation, and your region, will define the future of my life and that of my children. That's the 21st century. Well, let, let's, uh, let's turn back to the SDGs, because I think maybe even beyond multilateralism, this agenda requires everybody and all sectors of society and institutions. Um, I think one of the concerns uh, already, which is probably good that we're already getting focused on it, is whether there are viable paths to achieving some of the goals that we've fairly recently agreed. Um, uh, some of that concern is already growing. Uh, we do a lot of work here on looking at the path of ending extreme poverty by 2030, and there are clear warning signs already on the horizon a couple of years in. Um, so tell us a little bit what you think needs to happen to get us from great declaration of interdependence to a true system that is going to deliver a lot of the outcomes that we seek in these goals? You know, if I had a simple answer to that, I would be probably a very rich person. So um, I don't think I can answer that simply. 
what I would say to you is, and, and it goes back to an inspiration that I, I got from my time at the Oxford Martin School and Jim Martin, who established that school, he said, the 21st century could be humanity's best century ever, or it could be its worst century ever. And in that simple quote lies a very powerful idea, namely that you have a choice. And I think our challenge is to reframe the narrative and the political discourse and the debates in our families, in our communities, businesses, countries, parliaments, around the fact that we actually have the right, first of all, and secondly, the freedom to choose. And, you know, if people tell you today that we are going to fail in terms of global warming and decarbonizing our economies because people are just not going to, you know, take their energy systems into the 21st century uh, cleaner renewable energy um, matrix. I say to them, on what basis do you make such a claim? Uh, on what grounds do you mislead the public into believing such uh, a false truth? Because everything that we produce as evidence points to the fact that by somewhere around the end of this century, for the first time in human history on this planet, the access to energy is going to be the least of our problems. It's going to be clean, it's going to be virtually free, and it's going to have nobody on this planet anymore being prevented from having an opportunity because they don't have access to electricity or in whichever form that energy will be provided. This is not you know, dreaming. I mean, this is just factual reality. Um, it's, it's even likely that it will happen by mid-century, but I, you know, I want to be careful. So I think the, the power to choose is something that is immensely important for people to begin to believe that they actually can make things happen differently. We can decouple our economies from carbon dioxide. We can eradicate poverty. We have countries that have done it. You know, we have countries that run um, social welfare systems that are um, literally in the top league of anything that we would, in many parts of the world, aspire to. These are some of the most successful economies on the planet. Um, so. I think the first thing that, that any of us, whether we're engaged in our own community in the UK or we are a development professional working in another country, is to create that sense of, of freedom to choose and the opportunity to choose. Once you have that, you can begin to, I think, make very <coughs> different pathways possible. Um, the fact of the matter is that in a country such as China today, the future of development is being framed in terms of this notion of ecological civilization as a driving idea. Now, the rest of the world is still watching this with some bemusement, but if you are one of those who is able to spend some time in China and see how powerful an influence this idea is having on the development discourse, you're going to start having a very different discussion about the future of development than you are in the United States of America today. And I think this is extremely important in our role as development professionals, is to connect. We need to connect people who feel that they are stuck, they are not able to change the trajectory of their development, with others who have either ideas, have shown, have innovations that can, in a sense, liberate our thinking. It may sound a little bit prosaic, but you know, I think that's the DNA of, of getting out of this sense of hopelessness, of entrapment, because that's what people are also angry about right now. They have spent the last 20 to 30 years being told there is no other choice. There is only one way. You have to abandon 
your local you know, world as you know it. You have to succeed in this global marketplace. You have to liberalize. Um, you have to adjust to other people's norms. And out of that has come, I think, a reaction that says, no, I mean, who are you to tell me how I should lead my life? And some of that may end up in parochial debates, but other bits of this are fundamental to understanding what's happening to the politics of our world today. So before we go out to the audience for a first round of questions, um, let me just press you on, on one thing that you've talked about, which is, you know, everybody's looking at the challenge. The mantra is accelerate and scale, right? So those things that you're talking about, you know, if the energy comes at 2050 versus 2100, that's going to be a big difference because it'll make a big difference to the planet, right? Um, or as a famous science fiction author said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. There are a lot of people who are left behind. It's great if you live in London and you're able to come to things like this, but there are a lot of people who are left behind. So we have to figure out how to, how to move faster and to scale this. And I think a big part of that is that development is no longer about UN agencies or development agencies or NGOs or, or governments. It really has to be a whole of society approach. It has to have private sector, other elements of the public sector, everybody kind of bringing that in. Uh, so I'm curious, you're in a UN reform process where you are trying to figure out the future of the UN, the UN agencies, but also how do you create platforms that aren't just about the UN, that are about this kind of this bigger engagement? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, how are you getting your arms around that challenge? With some difficulty. <laughs> and first of all, we are obviously trying under the leadership of, of Secretary General Guterres to take on a number of UN system reform projects, because clearly an institution, a family, a, um, a federation such as the United Nations system needs to evolve. It needs to renew. It needs to re-energize um, re itself from, from time to time. So there are reforms of that nature, but these are principally systems oriented and therefore are more understandable and um, actionable for those on the inside, whether it's member states that govern the UN or whether it's us as leaders in, in, in the institutions. A second track, which is really also the logic of the systems reform, is to deliver a, a better value, a contemporary value of services to the world out there. The United Nations system, at the end of the day, must be judged by whether it adds value to what nations, societies, the global community wants to achieve. And here, I think we have all learned that, um, particularly in the development field, we have moved from an era of you know, transfer of knowledge, transfer of technology, charity in the sense of investing money in poorer countries to actually framing a new narrative around development that is far more connected, far more based on the notion of development partnerships. Rarely in a development project is there only one side that brings something to the table. And that has never been more true than today. So I think what most countries today look to towards the international community and in the development context towards the partnerships is ideas. Yes, resources to experiment connectors and connectivity to the global best practices. What have others tried and learned and how can we borrow from them in order to design our solutions locally? And UNDP finds itself in, a, in, a, in, in many respects in a perfect place to be that connector because being on the ground in 177 countries means that we're easily accessible to those who are looking for ideas, for connection and for opportunities to collaborate. 
At the same time, we have as our mandate to provide access to the best ideas and solutions on development. So if we do our job well as the United Nations Development Program, we are a very contemporary answer to a very current um, search for uh, development answers and solutions. And I think innovation begins to teach us a lot here because innovation is about co-creation. Innovation is also about understanding that what you're trying to do is not to bring an answer, you're trying to bring a number of people with a number of experiences and a number of networks together around the problem in order to solve it. So solutions become drivers in development. Whether we call them innovation labs or acceleration hubs or you know, many terms have been uh, created around this idea of breaking the mold and, and looking for the next frontier. Letting yourself be led by a horizon of possibility rather than the constraints of, of current funding or you know, mandates. In there lies, I think, the next uh, trajectory for UN reform. It is to understand that, first of all, in an SDG era, the most intelligent thing that must drive us is that you know, solutions are not singular. If you have a pollution problem in a city, the issue is not how to put you know, a cork uh, in, uh, metaphorically speaking, a chimney or the end of a sewage pipe. It's to go back to the source, to understand that you know, most poor people use very dirty fuels because they have no alternative. In one part of the world, that was explained to me by a minister who said, I need UNDP, not just UNEP, because this is a socioeconomic problem. I need to tackle poverty. I need to tackle social housing. I need to tackle access to energy. I need to create mortgage markets. I need to move millions of people out of a certain housing situation into another. And as a result of that, I will achieve multiple benefits. I mean, that's a very simple way of describing a solution pathway in the SDG era. And I think that ability to bring multiple um, benefits together in one intervention have that notion of the innovation world, which, which brings different experiences together and applies itself to a problem, is also, I think, a very good format for development partners to make themselves relevant in terms of their global connectivity, but also their engagement with other partners on a much more equal level in problem solving. Okay, so uh, we'll take a couple of questions from the audience, and then I'm going to come back with a few more uh, questions, and we'll go back out again. Uh, we are being recorded, and we have microphones, and so uh, please briefly tell us who you are, where you've come from, uh, and ask a, a question or make a brief comment. Um, so see a couple of hands. Um, I'm going to go in the far back, uh, the person on the left there, my left. Yes, thanks. <laughs> Ethnic minorities in Sri Lanka are condemned with anti-SDGs by the oppressive government. Can the UN um, penetrate through the oppressive government to reach the oppressed people? Um, I'm, I'll take one or two more, if you don't mind. Um, uh, this woman right up front here. Hello, Kate Bird, ODI. Um, I'd like to know what uh, UNDP's role will be in providing leadership around the Leave No One deb Behind debate. There's a lot of optimistic narrative, but what about people who are currently at the income floor of uh, $0.7 per day? That's uh, identified by Revalian. Um, 
who are facing intersectional problems uh, where poverty is being transmitted intergenerationally and they're facing chronic poverty. It's often intractable. Uh, what is UNDP going to do to support governments and other agencies to address these problems? And this woman right up in the front row here, please. And then we'll, we'll come back again, so uh, hold your question if you haven't had a chance to ask it yet. Hi, um, Marion. I work at WWF as the Sustainable Development Goals Hub Manager. Um, there are 21 SDG targets that are due to expire in 2020. Um, what are your plans um, for UNDP to make sure that these targets are met? Thank you. So a couple of easy questions to start, and I, maybe, maybe to, 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 ex, to you know, expand the, 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 the first question. I mean, the, you know, all governments are not equal. They're not equal in their ambition, in their treatment of their people, in their respect for human rights. I mean, it would be great to hear a little bit of your reflection on how do you how do you think about making progress in environments where there are real challenges with the government who's not always the greatest partner, even if that's what you would like them to be? You don't have to name names, but you're free to. <laughs> um, right. Well, let me first of all uh, refer to your question about oppressed communities. I mean, you know, since I took up my position, this has been one of the more difficult discussions that I have on almost daily basis because as the person who currently leads the resident coordinator system, as the vice chair of the UN's development system, I'm obviously confronted every day by situations and countries where there are egregious violations of human rights that um, require the United Nations to take a principled stand and at the same time, for another part of the United Nations system to figure out a way in which to work with the government of the day in order to move out of that situation. Um, with my colleague Zaid, who is the High Commissioner for Human Rights in the United Nations, I have spent a number of sessions trying to discuss how we can, in a sense, as a United Nations system, collectively take responsibility for human rights, take a principled approach, because it should not just be the responsibility of the High Commission of Human Rights to defend human rights, but also to recognize that we have a division of labor, which is an opportunity, because the point of a UNDP resident representative, resident coordinator, is not to be thrown out of the country. Um, now, sometimes that is um, a point that we reach with the government, and most of the time, I hope, when that happens, we have acted out of conviction and out of justification in a principled manner. And if a government you know, declares somebody a persona non grata, or you know, uh, a country like Nicaragua to this day does not wish to have the United Nations Development Program work in its country. I don't know the full history of an individual case, but I give you that context because the answer to your question is obviously, in one sense, easy. Absolutely, we work every day to reach oppressed people. But, you know, here the focus is we work every day, too. The question is, do we reach oppressed people? Can we make a difference to the lives of many who either through, um, you know, marginalization, impoverishment, discrimination, cultural, religious, uh, sexual orientation are simply uh, excluded from the mainstream of society? Clearly the answer is no. The United Nations cannot every day do that or succeed in doing that. But what we can do is to try and bring 
the full force in a positive sense of engagement with the country. And we work in some of the most complicated human rights environments in building human rights councils. And UNDP is engaged in dozens of countries in supporting human rights councils, which establish the fundamental opportunity in the first instance to even have a national discourse about it. We work in countries that often have a very complex and complicated parliamentary tradition in helping them to establish parliamentary procedures. Um, you know, how do you organize public inquiries? What is the right to be heard? We help, on average, every two weeks, countries around the world in actually conducting elections. So I mention these for a moment in the sense that there are means to an end, but the end that you define of actually reaching oppressed people, I think, very often will remain something that we, we try to come closer to. Um, obviously, in this very moment that we're meeting here, the Security Council is in Myanmar, I think, or maybe it has left by now. Mm. It was traveling first to Bangladesh and it was going to Myanmar. I've been actively engaged in, in the situation in Myanmar from my virtually first week that I joined UNDP because of the absolutely tragic events that, that have unfolded there. Um, you know, it is an interesting instance because Myanmar as a nation is engaged in a, in a historic struggle right now between those who want to retain a particular political system and those who are actually trying to build a new generation Myanmar. How do you operate as a United Nations organization in such a conflictual environment? Um, there is no simple answer to your question, therefore, and I just want to show to you that I certainly and many of my colleagues, and starting with the Secretary General, take this dilemma extremely seriously. We spend most of our time as senior executives um, reviewing our engagement in countries that are challenging along the lines of what you implied. So let me um, perhaps leave it at that for now. On UNDP's leadership around this, leaving no one behind, I think there are literally hundreds of ways in which we are doing this. I don't know who asked that question. Oh, sorry, here. It was Kate, right? Um, because if you take a project um, such as, or an, an, a group that we work with, I learn every day in my you know, first few months about the sheer scale of engagement UNDP has. For instance, with youth, we have 600 projects worldwide that work with youth. There are millions of youth that we actually are engaged with through these projects. I mean, it is quite an extraordinary scale of engagement. Often it's not millions of dollars, it's being partners to a whole new idea. Um, and for instance, last year, African Exchange with President Kagame, which was a, a kind of attempt to learn from a, an experience in Rwanda, it's now going well, viral, is perhaps not the right expression, but many other African countries are beginning to work with this idea that engaging youth is not just about rallies or something, it's actually about skills, it's about connecting them to entrepreneurs, it's about creating a belief in themselves that they can succeed in an economy that is not a job in the army or in the civil service. Um, we do it also by um, trying to bring visibility. I mean, here the SDGs again, and, and the issue of data and the notion of data is very important. Very often, leaving no one behind is to first of all recognize who you've left behind. I mean, we one of the you know extraordinary things about development is that we still often know so little about the people who have actually been left out, left behind, have been excluded. They may be indigenous people. They may be um, you know women uh, of a particular social group. Uh, there may be girls in terms of the education system. And I think here we are making a great deal of progress. And I hope that the SDGs in their joined up fashion will make it, first of all, much more difficult in the future to overlook 
people in society. That's a national issue also. And secondly, make it for development planning far easier to be targeted about where you would intervene. And I visited our India team uh, in New Delhi and, and sat with them and was watching how they're using the latest software in which India you know, is such a pioneer from the private sector to map the entire development databases of India to allow you in future to say, if I had, I don't know, X million um, rupees that I could invest in um, improving the coverage of vaccination or of, of health coverage or introduce new seeds to increase productivity, which would be the top 30 districts uh, that I should choose? We are months away from actually having the entire Indian development reality in a software database on which everything we know about development can be brought together and allow us at least a more intelligent way of choosing than in the past. I mean, data is not knowledge, right? It's not perfection, but it's certainly a means to get closer to it. And um, finally, let me also say we are working with partners um, such as the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative on the Multidimensional Poverty Index. It's, a, it's, you know, it's one of those um, key elements that is critical for us to understand poverty in its true nature, um, which is multidimensional, and how does that translate into development interventions. We're also looking at you know, our focus on the eradication of poverty very much from the perspective that it's not just about people somehow <coughs> making it out of a certain dollar <coughs> Uh, per day reality, it's the very troubling realization that 40% of these people fall back into poverty. So if we want to do poverty eradication, we have to think about what are the biggest drivers that put people back into poverty. It's the absence of social <coughs> welfare systems, no health insurance, um, and therefore catastrophic budgetary implications when just when you've crossed that line, you have to give everything up again. So that's why I think uh, we are engaged in so many projects around the world in precisely helping countries to tackle this issue of leaving no one behind from different vantage points. To Marion's point, um, you know, 2020 is, in particularly in environmental terms, obviously a key date. I mean, the Biodiversity Convention, the Aichi uh, Biodiversity Targets, the Climate Convention. Um, there's one more, actually, that I've now forgotten. Uh, um, but in any case, I mean, 2020 is a year in which a number, as you said, of the targets and, and also indicators will have to be renewed. Um, but your question went one step before. How do we make sure we meet them by then? Well, let me pick one example. Um, the nationally determined contributions, the so-called national climate plans that countries submitted in Paris. I would urge us all in this room and anybody who is listening right now, this is one that you know, every person across the planet could actually become engaged in. Start by asking, what has happened to our national climate plan? What are we doing about it? Does government actually have the means by which to tell its citizens right now, this is what we're doing about implementing our commitments? These are national, sovereign, agreed commitments. Nobody imposed them on any country. And over 100 and I don't know how many it was in the end, 180 have signed and submitted them. So here is a conversation to be had because in the next two and a half years, we have to prove that the Paris Agreement is capable of delivering enhanced ambition. And you know, many people have the feeling that these NDCs are not working. That's wrong. I can tell you from my, uh, to some extent, unrepresentative sample, but not small sample, there's an enormous amount of things going on with national determined contribution, with national climate plans. 
But we're about to enter into a critical period where the public perception is, oh, you know, Paris hasn't really worked and emissions seem to be going up again and obviously this is not working. Wrong, wrong, wrong. But it's us, it's people like us who need to start taking that conversation back into the media, back into the parliaments, challenge those who are hiding behind numbers and absence of figures and say, this is what <coughs> national climate action was meant to be. We are doing well, we are not doing well, or in these areas we have failed and in these we have excelled. And some of the biggest polluters on the planet have already surpassed their commitments last year in terms of what they were supposed to deliver in 2020. So to anybody listening, take the NDCs, take them seriously, don't let 2020 scare you. We will not meet all of them, but there is a phenomenal amount depending on whether out of 2020 we can continue to keep the logic of the Paris Agreement, which is a, a mutual commitment framework, alive to be able to work towards what the IPCC, the scientist panel that will release a report later this year on whether we even have a remote chance of staying within 1.5 degree global warming, whether we can achieve that goal. And much of it will depend on what happens in the next 5 to 15 years. So my answer to that is, in UNDP, in my capacity, I take extremely seriously the NDCs and the climate change targets. The Secretary General will convene a summit next September to bring the highest level of government leaders again into the public limelight to have them say and commit we are actually standing behind these targets. And we in UNDP have a phenomenally large portfolio of projects. We have 800 climate environment related projects with roughly $3 billion in funding. I consider that an extraordinary opportunity to help countries get moving on, on the climate action. Having said all this, let's be clear, we are, we are far from being there yet. But what happens in the next two and a half years is going to be a key piece of keeping the momentum alive and actually growing. So alongside con, uh, 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 climate change, let's talk a little bit about um, one of the other things that, that prevents us from reaching our goals, and that's peace or the lack thereof and, and conflict and, and violence. Obviously, the Secretary General has made a big deal uh, in his first year about this sustaining peace agenda and investing in prevention, getting back to the basics for the UN. Um, in 1992, Boutros launched the Agenda for Peace. There was the Brahimi Report in 2000. Is this uh, old wine in new bottles? Is there something real and fundamental and different about this agenda? Help us understand what it is and then what UNDP's role is in bringing it about. I think it's always important to, first of all, keep the focus on those who cause war. I mean, it's the parties to the conflict that are committing the crimes against both, you know, intentions, treaties, um, fundamental principles of, um, you know, living together in, in harmony on this planet. And I think we, we have to remember that because sometimes in, in the course of a protracted conflict, the attention starts shifting to those who are actually trying to help solve uh, the conflict from the outside by mediating, by intervening, by providing humanitarian support. And I think that's always a tragic error. Wars are led by people, and they are decisions to remain engaged. So, colleagues, I, I was last week at the Syria conference in Brussels. You know, um, we are in our eighth year of this terrible, terrible tragedy. 
with millions and millions of people displaced. And I kept on hearing the phrase that this, this conflict cannot be solved by military means. Yet, just about anybody who has the capacity to drop bombs on Syria right now is actually dropping bombs on Syria. So somewhere along this conversation of, you know, this is not a conflict that can be solved by military means, and those who have the means to deploy the military right now, we have an extraordinary gap. Into that comes, I think, the very strong sense of the Secretary General that the United Nations in the last 10, 20 years has increasingly found itself being more at the tail end of conflicts where it is a kind of um, ambulance service, uh, a fire brigade, um, you know, keeping people alive, absorbing refugees. I mean, really, in the Charter and its design and its intent, it was actually to be a force for preventing conflict, um, a force for peace. And much of what Antonio Guterres at the moment is trying to do is to, with member states, rediscover both a belief, a passion, and, and practical steps towards reinforcing that capacity. Because quite frankly, in the year 2018, we are in a year that is more conflict-ridden than anything we've seen in the last three decades. And therefore, clearly, um, the question of how we can intervene becomes uh, a critical challenge also to the United Nations. Now, in my responsibility, as the head of the United Nations Development Program, but also in our UN development system, what is quite clear to me is that in many of these instances where we see conflict happening today, it's actually a failure in development that, in part at least, can explain this. And so that failure in development may have to do with inequality, it may have to do with a combination of um, no shock-absorbing mechanisms in extreme weather situations, natural disasters, it may be um, a failure to invest equitably in a country. Um, it may be the lack of early warning in recognizing that a competition over resources could turn into an ethnic or tribal or religious conflict. And so the Secretary General and we very much also in the United Nations Development Program are putting a great deal more attention on this question of early warning, understanding the drivers of conflict and being able to intervene. This is about peace building, it's about uh, prevention. But we also find ourselves in many countries today um, being, in a sense, latecomers. I mean, conflicts have broken out, civil wars are going on, terrorism is raging in communities. And even there, I would argue very strongly that there is a reason why the United Nations Development Program today has you know, well over um, two dozen preventing violent extremism projects. What we're doing is not extending a military security logic to dealing with this. No, we're going back to the fundamentals of development and saying, in this country, there are communities who over decades have essentially been so marginalized, have never experienced the value of belonging to a nation state through access to education services, medical services, um, having an opportunity to vote, that when terrorist movements come across the border, which is happening, for instance, in the Sahel every day, and offer a far more practical and viable promise, then we should not be surprised that people will choose to go in another direction. And it's not a choice for being a terrorist. And here, let me refer to a report that UNDP published last year, which I found profound in its uh, insights and also in its, in its methodology. It went out to interview over 700 former combatants in extremist movements, let's call them that 
who had either been jailed or you know, had returned, and asked them a number of questions. But the simplest one was, in my language now, how do you turn from being the pride of your father and mother at the age of 16 into a terrorist in your community by the time you're 18? And the report is called Journeys to Extremism. I would, you know, to anyone who is interested in this complex between development, extremism, terrorism, how to, how to meet that challenge, have a look at this report. It's on, on the UNDP.org website, or you can just look it up as Journeys to Extremism. At its core, what the report says is, religion may be the vehicle, it's actually not the driver. That explains a lot of the fundamentalism today. What, and to me, the most, uh, you know, in a sense, illustrative uh, finding was that 70% of those who were asked, what was the trigger point for you to join one of these extremist movements, was actually the answer was government action. Now, the very action that is meant to combat terrorism and extremism, which is military interventions, so often tragically produces the so-called phenomenon of collateral damage. So military intervention will happen, aerial bombings, or armies move into villages in search of extremists. Innocent people get killed, mothers and sisters get raped, children get abducted. That is for 70% of those who are interviewed actually the immediate trigger when they decided this is it, I'm moving across the line. This is an immensely powerful reminder of how we can sometimes get it wrong in our desperation to get it right. So conflict, peace and security is less about the construct of the United Nations in its institutional configuration. It's more about going back to a very fundamental understanding that a society that produces inequality, discrimination, unfairness and no hope of resolution and justice sooner or later produces people, usually young people, who exit that society and join the so-called other side. So that's one major area that I think we need to engage in if we want to talk about peace, security, and development. The other one will arise over transboundary issues and you know whether it is natural resource-driven. I mean, I'm not an advocate of this dystopian vision that the Third World War will be about water, but I think transboundary resources are an extremely challenging phenomenon in the 21st century, whether it's water, whether it's resources, food, um, you know, even in the Middle East, it's now sand and dust storms that are affecting people. I mean, the decision over not doing something about land degradation and desertification in one country is shutting down airports, schools, entire cities in other countries in the, in the neighboring area, region. We have an urgent need for being able to work across national jurisdictions together on these issues, climate change being, in a sense, the most uh, dramatic one in terms of the need to act. But it's also on many other issues. And I think, unfortunately, we will see more and more conflicts arising out of a lack of uh, mature and sophisticated mediation and reconciliation of competing interests. And that is something where the United Nations clearly has to be far more engaged and prepared. Otherwise, it, it, it will fail to, to be a prevention asset. So the argument for prevention is compelling and a big picture, it is notoriously hard to get resources for prevention because you have to demonstrate that you think you know what's coming, and then you have to demonstrate that the action that you took prevented something that may have happened. Um, how are you thinking about actually building a culture, both within UNDP and more broadly, that actually manages to 
get and make these investments? Well, let me start from the tail end of your question. In UNDP, I have given a lot of thought with my teams on where where is UNDP's role in, in a sense, in an orchestra of actors? I mean, from the national level to the international level, the humanitarian, the peacekeeping, the development community. I mean, you can group them in many different categories. I think the beauty of, of um, a development mandate is that it is, in a sense, connected upstream and downstream. Upstream, we are connected to those who actually are in the prevention work. We try and understand and interpret um, what it is that we can do with development that will reduce the risk of conflict from, from emerging. And frankly speaking, it's not that difficult in analytical terms. It is extremely difficult in terms of global financing and policy inertia. You alluded to it just now. It's much easier to get a billion dollars to help in a drought, um, you know, fly in food, truck in water, than to convince the international community that investing maybe $2 billion in establishing a water infrastructure for local communities would actually be the best way of dealing with this issue. Um, we very often end up having to send in peacekeepers into a conflict situation that is an enormously expensive operation. Whenever you deploy military and troops, you know, this costs so much money. It's often more money than we have spent in a decade on development investments in that country. And I don't want to go into individual country settings, but I can give you figures that would make most of us, you know, uh, look at this with a, a sense of <coughs> astonishment. I think the, the critical part comes where we allow a development intervention, and this is again something where I speak to UNDP's role, working together with the Peacebuilding um, Support Office and Commission, with the Peacebuilding Fund, but also with the um, Peace and Development Advisors that we deploy together with the Department of Political Affairs. It's a very simple thing. The Department of Political Affairs, that is in a sense the monitor of what's happening on the political front lines and horizons, joined together with UNDP, and in about, I think it is now 27 or 28 countries, we deploy a joint peace and development advisor in the resident coordinator's office to be exactly focused on understanding where are risks and indicators of conflict triggering a different kind of development deployment. And at the tail end, you know, it's sometimes challenging the simplicity of economic cost-benefit analysis, which would say, you want to invest $100 million in job creation, put it in the big capital city and in three of the smaller towns around the country. Maybe <coughs> 50 million of those should be invested in actually bringing for the first time in, history of that, in the history of that country some schools, some renewable energy resources, some communication means to the communities who have been living virtually in isolation from that notion of my nation state. It's a different way of thinking about development. It's a different kind of cost-benefit analysis. But it's actually the way in which development becomes a peace-making tool, so to speak. So let's go back out to the audience uh, for some questions. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Sarah in the front row here. Thank you. Um, thanks, Akim. That was really Interesting. Uh, we published a review of the capacities of agency funds and programs to sustain peace last, um, well, actually, <laughs> it only came out in February, but we finished it in August last year. Um, and it was very clear that there is an enormous wealth of expertise and capacities across the UN systems, both, both in the agency funds and programs and in the secretariat, to help deliver these agendas. But the review highlighted very clearly that this is held back by 
you know, turf wars, competition, competition for funding, you know, rather sort of myopic approach to how, you know, the, the UN can deliver uh, in a more effective way, which of course is also at the heart of the, the reform of the UN development system. How do you think UNDP actually can exercise some leadership in particular over you know, an agenda that sees the whole system, particularly the FPs, deliver in a way that can really maximize the potential that collectively you do have? Maybe again we'll take two more questions if that's all right, or do you want to? Yeah? Okay. Maybe this gentleman on the comments, end. I mean, please feel free to disagree. <laughs> My name is Musharraf Hussain. I'm director of policy of ADD International. Uh, I'm talking about the people who are farthest behind. It's one billion people with disabilities in the world. Actually, in your words, uh, we are doing rally meeting and asking uh, our demands, but no organization practically came forward to address our issues on the ground. And uh, even DP has included and identified people with disabilities as one of the target people, and we have developed some indicators to uh, change our lives uh, in terms of elevating poverty and others. So how you are going to implement your uh, strategy to improve the lives of people with disabilities so that practically our life has changed, we have access to education, employment, skills, and we can live with a dignified life. Great. Maybe this gentleman here, and we'll we'll uh, take one more question, then we'll go back out again. Um, and the the shorter the answer, the more questions that we'll get to. Yes. Good afternoon, and um, happy May Day, by the way. Um, Carl Wright, I'm with the Commonwealth Local Government Forum, and um, I'd like to come back, Mr. Stein, to your earlier point about uh, partnerships and local solutions. Um, something I was quite involved in when we were formulating the 2030 agenda. I was helping to co-chair some UNDP meetings a few years ago on the whole concept of localizing the SDGs. And I think when you were talking about the alienation earlier on about um, global institutions and multilateralism, it struck me that really localizing development through localizing SDGs, through local government, through local communities, local stakeholders, may not only be a technical solution, which is often put forward, but also a solution to get more participation of the local population and, and I know UNDP has been championed this through your art program in Brussels and elsewhere, but, but could you tell us a little bit more about what your current thinking is about localizing SDGs and how that can be effectively strategized? And let me just conclude by also thanking you as a trustee of the United Nations Association for your excellent article in our publications, which is out there. <laughs> little plug. That's great. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> so, so three questions, and, uh, and then we'll go back out again. So. Well, to Sarah's question of, um, you know, there are many capacities. There is also competition. I, I often become more careful when the terminology, not yours used now, becomes into rivalry. Because my departure point is, you know, most people who work in the United Nations, and particularly in organizations such as the World Food Program, or UNICEF, or UNHCR, or the High Commissioner for Refugees, are people that are extremely passionate about what they do. So I think it's, it's rarely an issue of, you know, how do I outdo my sister agency, although I know a few colleagues who, you know, take that sport, sporty <laughs> approach to it as well. But the vast majority of people who work in our organizations are 
in a sense, laser-focused on doing what they join these organizations. They are passionate about it, they see the problem, they see the inertia, they see, in a sense, the lack of action by others and want to get something done. Now, managing that pool of energy is ever more complex the more organizations you have. Now, we have well over 50 different mandates, so people approach sometimes the same person it could be a person with disability who happens to be a woman, happens to be a girl-child woman, who happens to be an indigenous person, who happens to live in a country that has no democratic elections. I mean, I'm just borrowing for a moment on the notion of, you know, who is left behind. Our challenge in the UN is, that's why the SDGs are perhaps as challenging to us as a system as they are to anyone else out there. We have to learn to appreciate that often the solutions to a problem are not, as I said, around singular. There is, I think, one opportunity for UNDP to provide leadership because our mandate is not rooted in any particular sector. It is not linked to any particular solution, uh, ideology or, or paradigm. We are, in the first instance, a partner in search for solutions. We are embedded in the UN. The leadership we need to provide, this is also the Secretary General's vision with the UN reform right now, to have UNDP as a backbone, as an integrated platform. So it doesn't mean that the UN agencies work through UNDP exclusively, not at all. But very often, a development problem requires multiple UN agencies to come together. And therein lies, I think, a leadership role that I see as immensely promising and to some extent already playing out in reality. Secondly, it is also to connect uh, domains of action. And we talked earlier on about this humanitarian and development communities. It's a financial reality, it's a professional reality, it's an institutional community, it's a fraternity, it's an ideological view of life um, on where you stand in this right to intervene versus being asked to come into a country. Mark Lokok and I, our emergency relief coordinator um, in the UN, and I who you know, lead the United Nations Development Program, we have made it a point to travel together into countries to demonstrate that this notion of what is called a new way of working, and um, some people have sometimes called a new way of words, it's a new way of working in intent, and I think increasingly by necessity, is precisely to understand where does a humanitarian intervention in an emergency, whether it's an earthquake or a civil war or a, a terrorist attack, where does that intervention, um, in a sense, lead into a developmental response? And, you know, we used to do this in sort of segments. You know, we said, here is humanitarian, then comes whatever, then comes development, and if we do it badly, we'll be back to humanitarian intervention. The new approach, and this is also part of an analysis in the World Bank and UN report in which we work very actively on pathways to peace, we have more of a helix. You know, These are forms of intervention that need to work in sync with one another, sometimes letting one lead. I mean, when it's about getting food or water in the next 24 hours into a particular area, you're not going to start talking about capacity building on regional planning. right? But our ability to work hand-in-hand hand is, I think, both by the failures of the past, which are egregious sometimes, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, but also by the opportunities of actually doing it more intelligently enormous. And I see UNDP being a very positive force in leading, in catalyzing, in supporting. I think sometimes that role also will switch in, in the situations you're in. To Musharraf, very briefly, because I already tried to allude to how I view the, the challenge of 
working in development on the specific nature of disabilities in society and in the notion of leaving no one behind in the sense that they are connected. I mean, a disabled person is never just a disabled person, but clearly our, um, in the past, often institutional blindness, programmatic blindness to the specific needs of people with disabilities absolutely deserves greater attention. So I think the good news is that there is a, a general realization, partly because people with disabilities have begun to speak out. I mean, you know, in a sea of competing um, issues, priorities and interests, speaking out is part of being heard and listened to. So I think I can commit as UNDP uh, head that we are certainly listening. I can also say to you with some confidence that we're actually working in quite a number of programs now specifically on the issue of disability. I can also say to you without shame or apology that we have a long way to go and it was a colleague of mine from our Egyptian team who, when I met him just a few months ago in Mogadishu, where he was helping our colleagues there, said, this is an area in which we are failing too many people too often in too many places. So I can only say to you, it has my attention. I do not have all the answers. But I think we have great possibilities to do more with who we are today as institutions and UNDP amongst them. And it is a part of our strategy. Now, strategies are patient things that have words in them. But uh, in so far as I can look in the eye today, I have every confidence that we are going to be doing better and more and things more intelligently in, in years to come. Not least also because the attention here in the UK, Friends with a Disability Summit, is a great opportunity to, again, make that, that voice be more audible. And on the localization, um, absolutely, I think some of the most exciting work that is now happening with the SDGs is precisely this ability to move from global to national to local. It's happening everywhere. UNDP has now requests from over 110 countries, I think, in helping them take the SDGs into a national and therefore also local context. We have seen at the high-level political forum meetings in New York once a year, another one upcoming, many countries speaking to how they've actually gone about doing this. I, I have a most recent memory from a World Bank meeting of, of the mayor of Medellin talking about how in Medellin he had taken the SDGs in order to take major development challenges on. Localization is the greatest potential multiplier in action on SDGs that I can think of. So our engagement as the UN family with countries is, I mean, it, it's part of our DNA of thinking about SDGs that localization is, is a major uh, form of implementation, multiplication, and empowerment. Um, so no hesitation on that front. Um, let me take uh, just a couple more questions. We have a couple more minutes, and then final wrap-up thoughts. Uh, Mark. Hi, Akim. Mark Goldring from Oxfam. I mean, thanks. You've covered a huge amount of ground in terms of what is being done and what we need to do to meet the SDGs, and in particular, how we leave no one behind. One specific element, of course, is that inequality agenda and the inequality SDG itself. And you've touched on 
a number of elements of it, including most recently disability, which is obviously one predisposing factor. But how much traction do you see from your discussion with your colleagues around the world and, and with governments that inequality actually getting agenda getting within countries? How is it influencing policy making so that whatever element of development we're looking at, we're looking at the distributional dimensions as well as the absolute? Great question. And just behind you here, the gentleman with his hand up, well, that's the last one I'll take from the audience. I'll add one of my own and then let you uh, wrap up. Hi. Um, my name is Anna Salomon, and I work with uh, Development Pathways here in London. Um, my question is the SDGs were really meant to, to be applicable to all countries, in, in contrast to the MDGs, which are mostly for developing countries. So my question is, in, you know, we've had a few years now since the adoption of the SDGs. How well are the developed countries or OECD countries doing on actually tracking or maybe even implementing the SDGs? Um, if you yeah, would like to comment on that, thank you. And then the, the final question I'll ask you, and you can wrap these together, and we just have a couple minutes left before uh, going out to a reception. I was struck by something you said earlier before we started, actually, about uh, the need for uh, a, def a new defining moment on climate. You, you, you mentioned a Woodstock, something that really kind of gets into the mind of people um, the enormity of the importance of this and creates a big church to, in which to do that. And, and I think it relates to, to Mark's question as well. What I want to ask you is that you've been focusing on these things for so long. Um, is there a missing political movement that drives positive action on inequality and climate as the defining issues of our of our time? And how does the how does the SDG era utilize that and harness it, maybe it's a good mayday question, to, to bring that about. Because clearly there is a lack of, still in the world or in parts of the world, a lack of urgency, a lack of a political agenda that is going to get us to do some of the things that need to be done to accomplish the things that you've so eloquently talked about today. Thank you, um, Alex, for your question and, and to the other uh, contributors as well. To Mark's point on inequality, um, I think I alluded to it earlier on, I think the SDGs did take on this issue of inequality very explicitly because the last few years we have all stared at a kind of political economy, a political culture and a political landscape that is in some ways destabilizing and, and scary and, and I think we all know intuitively that it has a great deal to do with this notion of inequality, of fairness, um, and the sense of loss of fairness in it. And I think, therefore, it is not just an undercurrent, it is something that is driving a great deal of energy in the fabric of our societies, of the debates we're having. I'm struck at the moment by the, the challenge for development in the sense of a advice or a policy approach on how to tackle inequality. I mean, the, the brutal truth is we're living through an era in which we all know inequality is a problem, and most of our tax systems are actually evolving in a regressive sense, right? We are detaxing the wealthy, and we are taxing the poor more. 
even so-called tax reforms are, if you study them in terms of a 10-year impact, having a perverse impact of moving taxes onto what are regressive taxes such as VAT, where everybody has to pay the same and the income tax for the, the wealthier is coming down. We have another distorting element. Why are we taxing something that is called work and therefore a good thing in our societies with income tax? We punish work at its highest in our fiscal systems. Instead of shifting towards a fiscal system that detaxes labor, creates a fair competition, and here credit to Bill Gates who pointed out that it makes sense to put a robot in place because I have to pay 30 to 40 percent taxes for an employee that I employ to do the same job that a robot can do, which is capital investment and pays 10 percent tax. I mean, don't take the numbers, they vary in every economy. These are inbuilt distortions in, in, our, in our society that are central to a debate that you and I as a citizen may struggle to understand, but the experts should do a lot better and politicians should be a lot more conscious of the need to address these. Part of our role is to, you know, first of all, sensitize political leadership, uh, not just in institutional terms, but in a country to these implications because, you know, the IMF will come in and provide advice on, you know, a balanced budget. Um, it is increasingly also looking at the impacts on, uh, let's say, social and equity issues, but the principal driver will be you've got to get out of a deficit. Um, you know, one of the roles that I see UNDP playing in a very pronounced way, and this is not a juxtaposition, but alongside and with and together with other international institutions such as the IMF, is to offer a country also an insight of what will be the impact on those left behind of a particular set of policies. Because again, I come back to what will make development succeed or fail, and that is we have choices. Not, you know, we have no choice. And I think in development, this idea of choice is fundamental to, first of all, inclusiveness, right? Not have some decide for others what the trade-offs of development are. And secondly, also in arriving at different answers and solutions. And, you know, some of you may be aware that I once led the World Commission on Dams. Um, one of the most profound debates there was, you know, how do you trade off um, the livelihood of a riparian resident farmer, I, a small poor farmer who lives in flood plain agriculture with, you know, um, a thousand or five thousand megawatts of electricity produced for the capital city. If you take a classic cost-benefit analysis, that farmer should be moved and paid for the rest of his or her life an income. The truth is that very often the very people who made the greatest sacrifice in being resettled in order to allow a reservoir for a dam to be built were the ones left worse off. And, you know, they weren't even resettled properly. So these are the kinds of inequalities in development that we have to sharp, sharpen our lens and also put the spotlight on. That's where development, I think, can make a difference. But at the end of the day, I think, Mark, it comes down to political economy. I mean, societies need to debate these things, and they need to take ownership of them. I think a foreign international development partner will rarely be your solution to an inequality debate in a society. But what we can do is, is to be um, partners in how you can address them, make sure that invisibility does not become a continued reality, and thereby, I think, help to move forward. And then be part of a solution to maybe provide investments for communities that traditionally would not have been on the development planning horizon. 
On the SDGs, universal versus MDGs, um, I think the answer to your question, how are developed countries doing? Well, it depends. Some are doing amazingly, some are doing okay, and some uh, seem to somehow be in a state of pretending that they never signed up to the SDGs and that this was some summit on Mars, right? So, again, I would urge citizens to ask their members of parliament to put a question, because governments, prime ministers, ministers have to answer questions in parliament. If you're interested in why your country seems to never be talking about SDGs, ask a question in parliament. The heads of state and government signed up to this. Having said that, a lot of developed countries are doing great work with SDGs. I was in Stockholm in Sweden two weeks ago. We ran a national competition for SDG pioneers in Sweden doing things for Swedish communities in the SDG framework. And we had the most extraordinary winners, I mean, from the kind of innovation entrepreneur and to three women teachers from the north of Sweden. And we had a great you know, gala event in Stockholm to celebrate the SDGs in Sweden. Uh, the German parliament, the German chancellor, uh, passed, um, well, she developed a national sustainable development strategy based on the SDGs, submitted it to parliament. It was adopted by parliament. Germany has to produce annually an SDG report. So here is one of the major world's economies working with the SDGs. Does every Tom, Dick, and Harry, I mean, that used to be a very gender insensitive. Donald, 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 Donald yeah, no, it has to be. <laughs> Some women's name, I just realized. Forget about that. Um, one metaphor gone out of the window. Um, people in the street in Germany would probably, again, not know the SDGs necessarily, but they know some of the things that they're trying to achieve. They're part of the conversation about sustainable development, about inequality. So I think we need to pay attention to what's happening in, in the wealthy countries, the developed countries, because if they don't play their part, one of the fundamental assumptions breaks down, which is basically if they don't act, there's not much point in the others acting. So that is the, the, the social contract, so to speak, in the SDGs. And on climate, I mean, I never made it to Woodstock, so maybe I have a slightly romantic version and vision of what Woodstock meant. But to me, it is that sense of suddenly people feeling that, you know, we can actually do something um, together. We have a common uh, vision and experience. And um, it has often translated into movements I think climate change now is in a place where, on the one hand, it has become part of the mainstream of our economic, financial, political, um, daily lives, right? I mean, the energy sector in Europe has been turned on its head by the climate change issue. The oil and gas companies, you know, the, the sort of pillars of pension funds and of our global economy are rethinking their future in terms of stranded assets and where will they be as energy companies in the future. I think we are, um, however, in need of realizing that these are milestones along a very long journey that we have to take in literally transforming our economy. I think the, the challenge of climate change is a project without precedent in terms of urgency and time window and in terms of literally reinventing an economy in the 21st century. Now, there are those who say this is too complex. It can't be done. Rubbish. We have done amazing things in the past. And you know, we, quite frankly, also happen to live without gas, oil, petrol, diesel, and plastic 300 years ago. What makes it so difficult for people to actually believe that we can also move beyond that age and take advantage of the extraordinary opportunities that technology and 
economy and human ingenuity provide for us. Um, if, if you doubt that, ask yourself, why did we have all the patents and technologies for solar, wind, uh, geothermal already in drawers somewhere around the 1950s and 1960s? We didn't invent these technologies in the last <coughs> 10 years. And most of you by now know this, but half of all new electricity generating investments in the world over the last three or four years have actually been in renewables. They've outperformed oil, gas, coal, nuclear put together. Now, what happened? Basically, people started caring about climate change. They began to believe that this is essential, and we changed a few tools in our regulatory environment, said maybe it's time to go towards cleaner energy. Maybe it's time to not just you know, subsidize dirty fuels, but actually subsidize some cleaner fuels. And lo and behold, an energy revolution is underway. So it's a good note on which to end the discussion about the future of development, Alex, because that's what development work, in my mind, is all about give people a sense of possibility, give them a sense of and a right to feel that they can choose different futures, work alongside with them with ideas, with technologies, with best practices, and out of that come amazing solutions. We often in our frustration <coughs> about failures don't celebrate the thousands of victories every day in the name of development, sometimes accomplished by community leaders, not by <laughs> international organizations or heads of state. It's an extraordinary community of practice, and we need to celebrate it more. Well, that is a great note to end on. Um, hallmark of a great conversation is that there's people in the audience have more questions. I have more questions. People online have more questions. So we will leave them with wanting more. But you have been incredibly generous with your thoughts and your time today. So please join me in thanking Arthur. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.